This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please put small children, sensitive pets, fragile house plants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Out here, by golly, in the manly warthog man cave inside the Melon Law Studio, all of which is actually inside the Steve Sawyer Podcast Studio. We are here today, as you may see from our background, with the uh, Steve Spurrier helmets, just a little bit of the many, many things that you can see here from Steve Spurrier's career at the Steve Spurrier restaurant. So we're very happy today to have a guest with us for our Dance Alive National Ballet segment of the show, who is really a little bit unusual from what I've been broadcasting with uh, typically on the show. You've seen the dancers and you've seen perhaps the choreographers, but I've never come in contact with before the people who actually, and this is the lady who does it, puts together the tutus, if you will, uh, which is a term that uh, we had to be careful with because we have an example here right in front of the football helmets, and we joked about maybe having one attached to a football helmet. We don't dare do that. However, I can tell you that to be a professional, top-of-the-line, international-quality ballet dancer, you could be a wide receiver in the NFL. Uh, these types of athletes and artists where art and athletics intersect is a very interesting part of culture. Uh, these people are fantastically strong, fantastically fl flexible and quick. And you've seen us feature them many times on the Ward Scott Files on our Dance Alive National Ballet segment. But today we're in the podcast studio here at the Spurrier Restaurant with Chris Takashima, whom I met uh, one time in the audience after one of the performances of Dance Alive National Ballet, very pleasant lady, and inquired about what she did and, you know, me, nosy guy that I am. And uh, Chris was very, very congenial and responded that she was a costume maker, I guess is the way you introduced yourself, was it, Chris? Yes. yes. And, and uh, so I don't know. I think she's a little bit more than a costume maker. <laughs> so we're going to talk with her for a while today about what all goes into which I never gave any thought. We've got the Nutcracker coming up, Chris. Yes. And my golly, do we have costumes in the Nutcracker. Uh, everyone has uh, got something on that's been made, or I want to know your involvement in that. Did you put all that together? Well, so costumes for the Nutcracker tend to last 25, 30 years. So a lot of what we do for Kim for the Nutcracker, uh, for Dance Alive, is, you know, make sure it fits. So... Co these costumes are built with what we call trapdoors, okay? So even though all the ballet dancers on stage look like they're the same size, it's all an illusion. They're not the same size. Each one has got a slightly different body, so we have all kinds of ways to adjust the costumes to fit them every year. So a big part of that is taking care of that first, and that's called wardrobe. So I have a, a girl that works with me that does a lot of that work. I jump in for Nutcracker because it's just, there's probably close to 250 pieces. 250 pieces. For the costumes in Nutcracker. 
So all of it's got to be fitted. All of it's got to be adjusted. Now, every year you replace, like last year we redid uh, the marzipans. Um, and then we've redone Arabian and we've redone, you know, just segments. So you, you kind of, you try not to have to replace all of Nutcracker, obviously for financial reasons, for 250 costumes right. at one fell swoop. So it's a lot of maintenance. And then you just add new spice for the audience. So you want something new and pretty and shiny for the audience every year. And that's what you do, basically. So you basically work from a, a, a fundamental model of costume. Right. But you tinker with it, if you will, if you allow me that word. Yes. Adjust it, if you will, to a, yes. a specific little bit of a tweak for the next version. Right. What goes on with the costumes when you're not wearing them? So when you get finished with a performance, there are some costumes that um, you prefer not to wash. So you'll spot clean them and spray them with vodka. I know spray them with what? Vodka. That's a waste of good vodka. That's what, that's <laughs> what I say, but it kills all the bacteria in the costume. And oh, then no. there, Does it really? Yes. And it probably kills it in us, too, there. So that's medicinal Yeah, purposes. see? Oh, no, wow. you, you, you didn't know when you were having that martini wow. that you were actually taking care of your innards. I tell you. <laughs> that's something I learned. i got to remember that. Yeah. Yes, we have, we, we have bottles at, at my studio that have spray bottles that have the word vodka on them. So people know that it's not water. Um, so it's lots of fun. So anyway, we, we spray everything down, let it air out, put it on racks outside in a, in a covered space, and we let it all dry out because drying out anything that's washable. Actually, some of the two tubes... Was this clean with vodka? This, this one was not. This is kind of a new one. This one's only been worn once by a girl. This is a rental costume for my studio. And it actually went to Helsinki for the International Ballet Competition. She did Aurora from Sleeping Beauty. So that's this costume. Wow. But it's a good representation of, you know, how fancy they can get. They can oh get pretty golly. fancy. Oh, my God. I mean, that is really intricate. I don't know how well you can see it on the camera, but... Um... Now, this machine-made originally, or do people make these things by hand? How's that work? Um, I sit at a sewing machine for about 30 hours, and then I start decorating. Really? Yes. So, Ward, you seem like a guy that would like physics. I was going to say you seem like a guy who might wear a tutu. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I would never go there on air. Maybe afterwards we could talk, but not on air. Um, so when you look at a tutu, and I don't know if anybody can see, but the bottom of a tutu is basically a wedge. So if you're wondering how a tutu stands up, it's all physics. So each layer is progressively longer, which creates a wedge. And then there's a, I don't think there's a hoop in this one, but in a lot of them, there's a hoop that helps it stay stable for a long period of time. But basically the reason they stand out, and each of these layers, there is over 20 yards of 54-inch net in this tutu. And it has to be... Just cut. one tutu. Just one tutu. It has to be cut, it has to be ruffled, and it has to be adhered to the panty, and then I've got to tame it. i got to make it into this shape. So You must work year-round at this. I do. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. one of the lucky design and build studios. Um, so I, I special part of my heart goes to Dance Alive, because I actually knew Kim when I was 16, took ballet class from Mrs. Pofo. Um, local girl kind of thing, and just kind of giving back to the community. So they they really get, like, the very special deal from me. Wow. Um, so, but I sell all over the country. This year I have stuff going to California and Oregon and Canada 
and all up the East Coast, New York. Um, How do you do? Ship it? Ship it. Mm -hmm. I guess FedEx or something like yeah, that? Yeah, ship it. I'll be darned. You can actually take this off the hanger and you can fold it like a pizza and stuff it in a box. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Let me see if I can summarize it because this is a dazzling amount of information. Uh, you started doing it when? So I started doing it over 25 years ago, the actual tutu portion of it. Um, and then basically I was in Orlando and I started building tutus, making tutus for dancers who were going to competitions. Started working with some of the companies. I worked with Fernanda Bajonis at Orlando Ballet. Um, for those of you who aren't, you know, ballet, he was one of the best dancers in the world and was the artistic director of Orlando Ballet for a while before he unfortunately passed away. Um, I've worked with many, many professional companies. Uh, Glufsky Ballet, I've dressed like New York City ballet dancers. Um, so this whole process through this whole time, even though I was working a corporate job, the last five years um, that I worked there, I basically worked two full-time jobs. So I would go into work super early in the morning, I would leave at three and I would work till midnight. And I would get up and rinse, wash, do it again to build enough of a clientele that I could retire early. Well, I've got to ask you this question. What's that? Did you learn it yourself or did you have a teacher or how did that come about? So there's a woman in uh, North Carolina um, who used to dance for Harkness Ballet who has a um, website that's tutu.com. So you know how early she got her domain name, right? To uh -huh. get that, yes, very early. So she had a book. And then I found old tutus from like Joffrey Ballet um, and I took them apart and I figured out how they made it. Now I've sewn my whole life. So, you know, this wasn't like I just started sewing. I've, I've been sewing my whole life. Um, and just learned the technique and then eventually, um, there were only about 15 of us in the whole country. I bet, I was just going to get to that. I don't imagine there yeah. are a lot of people who understand how to do the. Uh, the tutus. Well, there's, you know, now they've, a lot of people teach how to make tutus. And so there's a lot of people that do it kind of, um, you know, they may work for a particular studio or, you know, they'll make costumes for the, the people that they know. But people who work on my level, um, who do all across the country, there's not a whole lot of us. And we all know each other and we all share clients. Like if we're too busy, we pass clients along. Um, but for, I think for, for Dance Alive, the largest number of costumes we did, we did over 60 costumes for Carmina Burana. So that was almost a complete replace of a lot of the costumes for Carmina Burana last year. Um, and we will be remaking all the tutus for uh, Swan Lake this year, coming up. Remaking all of them? Well, she, uh, Kim has a base tutu that she gets from Brazil, but we're making all the bodices and the plates and the decorations. Let me turn down so we don't get a double voice here. Okay. Um, the magic of all the machinery we have here in our uh, studio here at the podcast studio in Steve Spurrier's restaurant. And we did not, mind you, put the tutu onto the face mask of the Football helmet. <laughs> yes. We dare not do that. That would be a little sacrilegious. That would, I be, think. A little, that yeah. would be a little something else. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, so, so there's about 15 of you in the country. Does that number stay about the same? Um, any young people get in? I guess where I'm going with this is, uh, is there an apprenticeship or is there some way in which 
I worry about who takes care of tutus when people who make tutus pass on. I'll tell you why. I grew up uh, with a um, grandmother and aunts and all, all of whom sewed, mm -hmm. crocheted, and mm -hmm. knitted. Yep. And unfortunately, when they left for the heaven, yes. so did that ability. Yes. And I have to this day, uh, for example, my mother made a quilt out of her old physical education clothes. And, you know, that's the type of thing that happened in the culture then. Yes. You didn't go to the store and you bought something and all that. Mm -hmm. The women made things. Yes. And along with that, by the way, was canning and putting the things away mm -hmm. and growing them yourselves and all that business. So is there a, a, a world of apprenticeship here? Or how do you when how do you teach somebody else what you're doing? Do you have anybody in line? Yes. So my helper mm -hmm. is just turned 28. Really? She, her name's Rebecca, and she is absolutely amazing. How did She's, you find her? Actually, um, at Joann's. She was working at Joann's, and another lady that I knew worked at Joann's came in and told me, you should talk to Rebecca. And we ended up, Rebecca and I ended up talking at Jane's wedding, and I said, oh, your dress is beautiful. And she said, well, I sewed the whole thing by hand. Oh, she, and that, that alerted you. I was like, holy cow, I don't sew any whole thing by hand. I mean, this dress was gorgeous. And I was just like, okay, so <laughs> what are you doing next week? Because I had to do a whole, I had like nine days to do Carmen. So when they did Carmen out at um, Santa Fe uh, for the leads, they didn't have costumes. So in nine days, you and your helper made all the lead costumes for Carmen in nine days. Now, when you say made, you talking about from scratch? Yes, sir. Let's start with from scratch. What would you start with? So, My mother started with her PE outfits. Now, I know you don't start with PE outfits. No, I have basically a whole fabric store in my studio. So I have about 700 yards of fabric. And so I pick the fabrics. The inside of any of these garments is a fabric called Cotel. It's almost, it's a herringbone canvas. That's why they last 30 years. So you put, you get your pretty fabric and you stabilize it. You put it onto the cotill, you flatline it. Then you sew the whole thing together. And then you put in boning, steel boning, like would go in a corset. So that helps hold it up. That illusion that, you know, the dancer's basically naked and nothing moves. Yeah. That takes a lot of work, a lot of work. So you have steel boning inside. You cut a panty out of stretch. You mark it. You sew on twelve layers of net plus butt. Just one pulse. costume. Just one costume. Then you put the basque on, which is the part underneath here that has um, that has hooks and bars on it. So that would be. You can see the basque here. So oh, this, this is beautiful. I, I don't know if you you can see, um, but that's they're all beautiful. But this is just really something. Yeah. The detail in this and the care. How long did it take you to do that? So this one's probably 45 hours. All of 45 them, hours for one costume? For, for for one costume. So all these are put on by hand. All the rhinestones wow. are put on by hand. These are all hand sewn around the edge and then painted. So I hand painted all these. The flowers are hand painted. Um, then all of this is rhinestoned. This is actually um, for the dancer. It's called a windshield. <laughs> A windshield? A windshield, because it's a windshield. Yeah. And you can put rhinestones on it. We have funny names for things. But this is the bodice. 
And you can see kind of sort of there's that canvas fabric inside, but you see all the pieces and all the oh boy. pieces of metal. This is steel boning. It's literally steel and a spiral uh, boning, steel spiral boning. And then this is the basque. And then so if you notice, it comes up really high. That's so if you're putting a taller dancer or a shorter dancer in. Really? It's you can slides. adjust. You can adjust. And then on the back side... You can actually, I don't know if anybody can see this, but you have tons of hooks and bars. Wow. And, and you put all, sewed all those in there. Yes, I did. <laughs> Tammy, can you see? I tell you, y'all need to take a, they, they've got their head buried in, in machines. I want them to see art. <laughs> okay. So that's how we do it. And um, so we, we make effectively anything. I mean, I can make, right now I'm working on building um heads for you know how the nutcracker head looks heavy but it's really light it's called verifoam it's a, i've never a, had it on i assume what you say it's light i know yeah, it looks big it, yeah it's big so it's made with veriform which is a thermoplastic and so i'm building i'm doing a uh, one for orlando called eden and i'm building a giraffe a zebra five wow. different cats and a snake so we, we do everything. We're a design and build studio. So we design everything, then we build it. We do everything from scratch. The decorations, this is pretty intense decorations. It certainly is. Uh, it is everyone this intense? No. Is no. this for a special uh, role? Um, this, this is actually the Crystal Fountain Fairy from Sleeping Beauty. I got you. Okay. So I brought you two Sleeping Beauty tutus. This is, the other one was Aurora. And then we do these little things that go on their arms that make them look pretty, make them look fluffy. Um, so, depending. So this is this is also a rental. So we can go a little crazy with our rentals. If I were to sell this to someone, it would be fifteen hundred dollars at least. Yeah. yeah, and that would be pretty much a deal. Yeah. Um, so, depending on who you're buying from, tutus range in price from anywhere from eight hundred to three thousand dollars for one costume. We going back again. Why do we make costumes last for thirty years? It's not a. It's not like one of the recital costumes where it's like you know one hundred fifty right, bucks right, and right, right. you know you give it to them at the end of the show when they take it home. These these are built to last. They're built to be cleaned. They're built to be used. I promised you an interesting show today for Dance Alive National Ballet. And with Chris uh, Takashima here, we certainly have that and in, in, in some. Uh, if you have any questions here, I look in the chat line to see what's going on. Um, are these specially ordered and sold to different dance companies, or do you sometimes just make one as you feel it? Um, actually, great story. Um, when COVID hit, I'm not a good board person. So, of course, I wasn't making anything because theaters weren't open. Um, and so I decided I had always wanted to do the third act of Sleeping Beauty, which is all the characters like Puss in Boots, uh, the White Cat, um, all of the different characters in, in that, that third act. And I made them all. I just made everything. So During this, COVID, because you wanted to do something. Because I wanted to do something. And some of these costumes, so like this one was done during, I did all of the fairies. This was one of the ones I did during COVID. So I just went crazy, had fun, taught myself some new techniques, learned some new things. You know, so I... Now those talking, let me, let me, you don't mind if I add? Yeah. Every once in a while I trip over something really interesting. 
taught yourself new techniques. Is there anywhere you go to learn this, or you just trial and error your way through it? So if if I sometimes I know that something exists, and so I'll go, of course, YouTube, or I'll you know blow up a picture, and I can basically I've always been good at figuring things out. Um, and I I did take tons of art class. First time I went to college was for art. That didn't work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it did work. I mean, well, I mean, not in the way you thought it was. No, gonna not work. in the way I thought it was going to be. But so that for me, the research part of it is just like, how do you do that? How can I make this work? You know, and then I have no problem sitting there and figuring out piece by piece how to do something. And I always challenge myself to keep learning how to do new things. So there are two sides of my business. One is somebody calls me up and they say, oh, I want a black swan tutu, which I'm working on right now. And so it's like, you know, 800 bucks for this tutu. And I work with them. I get their measurements. I design what, you know, listen to what they have to say and I design it. We agree on the design. They sign off. I draw a picture. They sign off. I make it, put it in a box and send it away. Then there's ones like this where I just go crazy and play. <laughs> and I use those as rentals. And so this has been rented probably 12 times. What's it cost to rent that? Um, so if you rent it for the season, the competition season, there's a lot of ballet competitions. It's $350 to rent it for about four months. If you're renting it for one particular competition or show, it's $125. And that includes sizing it to fit and cleaning it. You just send it back to me. I clean it, take care of it. We have a question here. Where are the, all the costumes stored? Um, I have an entire room in my house that has racks. And I have over, um, I have about a hundred rentals. In your house? In my house. And I have a okay. dedicated studio that we, we added as an addition when we moved up here. And interesting. it's Very designed interesting. Just, for, just for my, what I do. And one other longtime fan says, be sure to use cheap vodka. <laughs> I do. I use the cheapest vodka I can find. That way I'm not tempted to make a martini with it. <laughs> Yeah, Plantation Mark, I said, she uses cheap vodka. She's not going to use uh, some of the good stuff to clean. That's so fascinating. Many people, unfortunately, that's the only detail they remember is that she used vodka to clean. I think, I think it's kind of fun myself. You know, when I was working in a theater one time, I was, uh, you know, watching somebody, and this is eons ago, and they're spraying it. I said, oh, why are you spraying water on it? And the, the old Russian wardrobe person turned around and looked at me, and she goes, it's vodka. <laughs> Killed the, the diseases. Like, oh, gosh, yeah, that's good. <laughs> Do your costumes find their way into other countries? Uh, yeah, Canada and sometimes Mexico. I've sent, um, I actually got to make a jacket for Matthew Bell, who dances for the Royal Ballet in England. Really? So he's used that jacket to guest. Yeah. So... Now, yeah. you have a little label inside there, uh, Much Ado Tutu's label? I do. Good, you I, should. I yeah. do. I make sure everybody knows I made it. Um, but literally, I made my first costume in sixth grade. That's how long ago I fell in love with costuming. Do individual, got another good question here from somebody who's a real fan of ballet. I know this gentleman. Uh, do the individual dancers ever come in for the sitting? For the fittings? Fitting, yes. I mean, fitting, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, it's always a pleasure for me. Um, I take intensive measurements. There's, if I'm working, you know, with somebody who lives in California, obviously they're not flying in for a fitting. 
Uh, there's probably 40 measurements that we take over a video chat. But if I get to actually see the dancer and fit the dancer and go, you know, how does this feel? How does this feel? It's such a pleasure for me um, to have that interaction. Are there any costumes that you make for the men, male dancers? Yes, I make tons of men's jackets. In fact, you could make one for Jason here, perhaps, huh? I, I could. I could, <laughs> I, I could make You can't him. see Jason, but he's been listening avidly. I mean, he's wanting to know how. No, Jason, you cannot wear a tutu. <laughs> Actually, there's two of our new jackets this year for the Cavaliers in uh, Dance Alive's production of The Nutcracker. Uh, one is a white and gold and silver one that Roberto is wearing. And um, another one is a cream and gold one that Gabriel's wearing. And they're both performing Cavalier, and they both have their own jacket. So I... You made my, that for them. We, my, uh, my company made that. Rebecca made uh -huh. Gabriel's, and I made Roberto's. But my son was a professional dancer for eight years. Oh, so, really? Yes. Now, you left that part out of the story. Let's hear about that. Um, so yeah. <laughs> uh, he danced with Orlando Ballet, Louisville Ballet, and Columbia City Ballet. So he danced for about eight years, and he said he wanted to retire before his uh, back and his knees were no, no more. No kidding, yeah. Yeah, um, but I made uh, tons of jackets for him because he was very, very small. I mean, t very thin. And so a lot of times uh, he would do the summer programs up in New York. He had full scholarships both to the ABT summer program and to the Joffrey summer program. And the way that I met the artistic director of Igluski Ballet was he was walking by the studio and saw John Michael trying on this jacket. And he said to my son, who's like, I don't know, 20 at the time, maybe 19. I think he was 19. And he goes, where'd you get that jacket? John Michael goes, my mother made it. And he goes, <laughs> she did not. And John Michael, who is my child, definitely goes, why would I lie? <laughs> so anyway, we ended up meeting and we've been friends for 20-something years. I mean, it's just a, a wonderful thing. But I've probably made, I've made probably close to 700, 800 tutus, and I've probably made about 150 men's jackets. Isn't that something? Yeah. I mean, that is something. And you've been, and over how much time has that been? You said 20? About, about 25 years. About 25 years? Yeah. And you can't retire. Um, I, I will eventually. Oh, come on now. <laughs> uh, I will eventually, but um, Rebecca is really stepping up, my helper, and um, my goal is for her to take over the business so that we still have, you know, tutu makers, people who make costumes, who really understand. There's a lot of people that say they make costumes, but they don't really understand what they're doing or how it works or how it looks 10 years later. Does it, is it still a functioning costume? Um, and that's, that's the, the technical side of the art, is how do you make something that stands the test of time. Do you ever get requests from people who are not in the ballet world for a costume? I do, and I say no. You say no? I say no. So you don't make Halloween costumes, nope. you don't make anything else? Nope. That you're strictly in the ballet business? Um, ballet and theater. Ballet I do and theater. Some, some small theater, just for, just for people that I've known a long time and we work really well together. Um, that's generally not the, the space I play in. That's a different lane. So Can you give lane, me an example of something you did in a theater that I might, our listeners might be familiar with? Or? Um, so I actually do... Batman or something? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm trying to think of something local. Um, theater is really different um, because when you do theater, a lot of times you rent the costumes uh -huh. and then you're physically adjusting them. Mm -hmm. Um 
costuming from scratch with a design. I don't think I've ever done anything from complete beginning to end for theater like I do for ballets. Mm-hmm. I've done. I've been given carte blanche where um, they they show me the choreography, um, send me a video, and they say give me a general scope, and they say okay, go crazy. <laughs> that's what I'm doing right now with Eden. Um, so it's about 40 costumes, and it's due in March. So we're working on those now. 40 costumes. Yeah, okay. and all the animals and the headpieces. So literally, she said, just, here's here's a, she put a, the video up for me on YouTube. I watched it, and she said, okay, here's here's basically my budget, and design something for me. So I did design sketches, fabric samples, went up to New York, um, went to my, we're doing a lot of unitards, Went to my favorite spandex, world spandex house, um, shopped in the garment district, and then drew sketches with fabric samples and sent them to her, and she was ecstatic. We tweaked a couple things, and then we're building the show. Well, you know, I'm of the age when I remember tailors. Yes. Real tailors. Yes. And um, they are very rare now. They are very, very rare and uh, once upon a time, you may find this difficult to believe, but I shopped at very fine men's stores. Mm-hmm. And they always had a tailor, at least one tailor. Yes. And I was always fascinated with those people, you know, having grown up around the, the women who always um, did all the knitting and the, and the crocheting and all. Um, these men who were excellent at what they did. Now, they've sort of disappeared with mass department stores and things and yeah. Things off the shelves and all, but these guys would—they uh, were hand in glove with the with the men's store. Yeah, you absolutely, absolutely, every essential part of it. And um, I, I, I'm glad I was around to see that sort of thing. You know, I think so much now. How shall I say this? Mass produced or? Well, they call it fast fashion. Fast fashion. Yeah, it's disposable. You wear it six or seven mm-hmm. times. It's it's no longer wearable, and you throw it away. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. But well, I'll tell you, I gold Gainesville story. Okay. So I'm a little tomboy, little kid, all boys in my neighborhood. There's these two maiden aunts that were born shortly after, and this is Northeast 6th Street, right behind the school board building. And these women were probably late 80s, early 90s, and they just couldn't stand this little ragamuffin little girl running around. You. Me. And so they brought me in. I learned how to embroider. I learned how to bead. I learned how to hand stitch. I drew the line at, at plate painting. I was just like, no. <laughs> so you like the needle. I like anything with a needle. So, yeah. and I'm like, I want to say I was seven, maybe eight. And my mom, like, like your your female relatives, my mom was an amazing seamstress. Uh, but these ladies taught me this kind of stuff. My mom yeah. did not do this kind of stuff. She like made clothes for the family. Um, they were beautiful, but she didn't frou-frou. She didn't like frou-frou. They were into the frou-frou. So I learned how to be, do all kinds of, I can freehand embroider and cover this entire thing without even that thinking That was my grandmother. It. My grandmother was the one who had the, uh, ability to do the detail. The embellishment, and, and, yeah. And all the embellishment and the crochet and, yep. and, um, all the doilies and things. Oh, so, yeah. Uh, we still got them. You yeah. Know? And they're They'll intricately done. They last forever. Um, it was just a fantastic thing. And I think it has to do, I don't know how far you can go with this, it's just anecdotal. There was no internet, you know, there was no, in her day, there was no electricity, really. I mean, it mm-hmm. was, uh, and no running, you, know, you had a well, you right. know, and, and 
and you had great and you had a winner. Right. You know, and so you had a lot of time where you were on your hands, so to speak. Yeah. And um, I think that's how some of the women did it that, yes. and dealt with it. Mm -hmm. They, 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 you know, you weren't going to jump in a car and run down to the mall because there weren't any roads to jump in, no car to jump in much. And uh, right. there's still horses and all that business. So I've always been fascinated with that, uh, with that. I only, you know, when you're young and you meet your grandmother, she's already old. Right. And But you're fascinated with what she, you know, knew. You know, for example, my mother, I'll tell you, everybody pretty much knows this in this community, lived to be 107 and a half. Wow. And she was born in 1912, three months after the Titanic sank. Wow. And Channel 20 here did actual two features on her mm -hmm. when she turned 100 and then when she turned 105. Wow. And um, <clears throat> the things that she lived through that when I think about it, and one of the, what I'm getting with this is consistently was this ability to sew and all this business and sustain yourself uh, through all this duress. She lived through the Depression. Um, the, the tragic, really, upheaval was World War II. Mm -hmm. um, I asked her about the Depression, which, from which those people never recovered. Um, uh, what did you have? She says, well, we didn't have money, but we had food. They grew their own food, created their own gardens, created their own clothes. And for entertainment, I've always remembered this, too, uh, each played an instrument. Mm -hmm. And the family would come in and entertain itself, and they'd roll up the rug, so to speak, and my grandfather played the fiddle, and my mother played the piano, and, and they had a dance, you yeah. know? And they supplied it themselves. They didn't go to the club. There was no club, <laughs> you know? And, you know, out of that created a, a culture of art right. that really has stuck with me. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm glad to see you are attached to it in some uh, very uh, uh, essential way. Um, uh, much ado tutus is what we're talking about here with uh, Chris Takashima, who's been in the business, I guess, 25 years um, and still going. You don't expect to retire anytime soon, right? Probably not. Good. Um, yeah, probably, yeah, I probably got a good five years left at me. <laughs> well, we have the Nutcracker coming up soon, and this is part of our Dance Alive National Ballet Show. We're doing it a little bit early this week because we are going to be off on Thanksgiving and Friday. But um, in the coming show, are those your costumes and... Well, some of them are like the men's jackets. The men's jackets. Um, I don't want to know what to look for when I see it. Okay. Well, the <clears> easiest <throat> ones to find are the men's jackets. The men's jackets? Yes. So the Cavaliers, both of the Cavaliers are wearing something that we made. And they guys look absolutely gorgeous in them. I'll bet. They're very proud of themselves. I'll bet. <laughs> and you always dance better when you look good. Let me see what we got here before we sign off for our bottom of the iron break. Uh, Somebody's remembering Big and Bib and Tucker at Westgate, and uh, uh, yeah, I remember some of the places that I was thinking of Stocks Men's Store down on the square before there was an uh, interstate. Yeah, and you remember the days before there yep. was an interstate. Yep. Before there was a mall. Yes. And everything was around really the town square. Yes, I and, remember uh, that. Which I miss those days. You know, those were the better days Wil for me. Wilson's Department Store. Wilson's Department Store, J.C. Penney downtown. Yep. Um, I just. Those were the days for Gainesville for me. Once we did this um, spreading out and everything, why well, I think we lost control of, of the whole concept of a, of a city. Yes. It's not, uh, it's, it's uh, the second half of the show will be radically different from talking to Chris because I'm going to be talking about how dysfunctional the city of Gainesville has become. <laughs> but we've been long here. We know the days when it was relatively normal. 
Yes, <laughs> yes, it was very quiet. Very quiet. We won't get into those days, but uh, uh, it was very, very different. Uh, 441 was the big road, and uh, that was the only uh, uh, national road we had. It came through town was 441, so everything else was pretty quaint. Um, so anyway, it's been great talking with uh, Chris Takashima. Uh, we'll put this on thewardscottfiles.com, and we'll also put it out on rumble.com. Remember to go to rumble.com and like us and follow us. Um, since um, uh, we've been dealing with Rumble, we've had a lot of people follow us, and we want to invite you to follow us. Uh, we're going to take a bottom-of-the-hour break, and we may take a little longer than bottom-of-the-hour because we'll help Chris uh, get her tutus out to her vehicle. So, <laughs> um, And we know, Steve, we did not put them on your football helmet. <laughs> Although... Uh, I tell you what, uh, I have a lot of respect for the male ballet dancers. Yes. Uh, they are tremendously strong and flexible and, uh, and quick. And, and uh, you know, I best heard it described one time that ballet is where art and athletics intersect. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. We're going to take a break here at the bottom of the hour. I want to thank Chris Takashima for coming by. Um, I don't know if you have any need for... Uh, uh, much ado tutus, but at least you know about the business. And you certainly know when you go to the ballet to look for these costumes, we wanted to get the story behind the story and always have wondered about the costumes and who was involved with them and what all went into them. And uh, hopefully we've shed a little bit of light on that for you this half hour. We'll be right back on the Ward Scott Files after we take a break to thank our sponsors and our donors. Stay tuned. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. Warthog. He's gonna come up the steps. Here he comes. 
Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Ask these furrier here. You know, making a reservation at my restaurant is easier than a Saturday afternoon homecoming game against Vandy. You don't have to call or email. Just go to Spurriers.com, hit the reservation button, pick a date, number of guests, and a time. It's so simple, I can do it. In fact, I just did. Maybe I'll see you tonight. Now for the weather brought to you by Lewis Oil. Good morning, good morning. We're back here on the Ward Scott Files. We're in the Steve Spurrier podcast studio in the Steve Spurrier restaurant, which is really a Steve Spurrier museum to all the great accomplishments that my good old buddy, whom, with whom I go back to the mid-60s, uh, accomplished in his life, always having fun doing what he loved doing, which he was extremely talented at. Come down to the studio sometime. Come down to the restaurant. The studio is in the restaurant, and you can actually reserve the studio if you'd like uh, to have actual your own uh, meal here with your guests inside the studio, which is soundproof. So if you have any secrets you want to keep while you talk over supper, hey, try to book the studio. Um, we have got a rainy day, and what I can tell from uh, there's been no precipitation per se for the last hour or so, but it's about 60 degrees, and it's supposed to be kind of rainy and gloomy through the next couple of days if you find rain to be gloomy. I'm not one of those people who necessarily finds it to be gloomy. Uh, sometimes it's great to just uh, sit back and read a book with. So, uh, But their forecasting is that downpours will keep uh, drenching the sunshine state ahead of Thanksgiving. We want to thank uh, Lewis Oil for bringing this opportunity to uh, talk about the weather with you. Uh, there are cross-country storms that are still uh, causing travel headaches around Thanksgiving in the country. Of course, by now, everybody has seen the snow dump in Buffalo and upstate New York that I, I swear I think the snow was up to the top seats of the Buffalo Bills football stadium, it seemed to me. And, uh, boy, that can really be a problem. Um, you don't go anywhere and you can't go anywhere and it's up over to the roof. So, um, there's um, supposed to be one blessing in this is the uh, ski slopes, of course, in Colorado, which they love. That opens up the season, and there's a lot of um, um, places there you may find entertaining for your vacation, provided your travel. I have flown into Denver's airport uh, when it's been quite balmy, uh, say 70 degrees, and flown out a week later when it's been 20 below. Um, it's just one of those things that happens in the mountains and out that area. So... Uh, keep your eye on the, 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 the vacation weather, and if you're going to travel, you probably ought to plan on maybe it being a little bit iffy, depending on when you're going and whether or not you got to apply and take uh, changes and all that kind of business. Um, so, um, hey, Betsy Whitaker is watching, and I really appreciate having her on watching from Mexico. Mexico, where Betsy and Doug Whitaker have gone, has got kind of year-round same weather. Uh, about 70 degrees, uh, a little bit rainy season, but uh, quite often it's just uh, uh, pretty much within a very pleasant normal range there where they are around Ajajic, Mexico and Lake Chapala, where my wife and I honeymooned, and we were the ones who kind of tuned them in, I believe, if I think back properly, 
to taking a look at Ahihik uh, as a place to retire. There are a lot of uh, people there who've gone uh, not only to stretch their dollar, dollar but to enjoy the weather uh, to keep the theme here on our uh, bottom of the hour uh, conversation. So um, I got a segue into the uh, last part of the show here. Uh, we, uh, previous guests who grew up in Gainesville, and I remember the good days of um, Gainesville. For us, they were good days. It was a smaller town. Um, there was no interstate. There was no mall. Um, there was really uh, a kind of a, a quaint atmosphere. The university was much smaller. Uh, the east side of the football stadium was wooden bleachers. Uh, the north, uh, the south end zone was wooden bleachers. Uh, the north end zone only went up to the bottom uh, set of uh, seats. There was no enclosure. Um, the west side was pretty much as it is now. And it had a uh, press box. And, of course, Florida Field was there. Uh, when I got here and saw the first games in 1961. So, so much has changed and a significant change has been with the city getting more uh, complicated. And one of the things that's complicated it is going, in my humble opinion, is going to seven commissioners instead of keeping with five. A seven is really unwieldy. It's, um, it, it's not what you want. It's um, they, because they become more possibilities for bickering and and um, um, malcontent among the commissioners. Uh, they're chosen in a lopsided kind of way. Some in the Gainesville uh, political model are chosen from districts. Others are chosen at large and you vote in a mayor and rather than rotate one of the commissioners to be the mayor. So this makes for you know a lot of opportunity for disharmony and that's what we're seeing right now. All you have to do is have one cantankerous commissioner on there, and it's like having the proverbial bad apple in the barrel. That bad apple rots the whole barrel. And we've got a bad apple in this, whom I've always referred to as the communist Cuban commissioner, Cinco, I think is her name. Uh, she is argumentative. She's rude. Uh, she's uh, uh, what she is and is what it is. And she's even been known to give the international fighter pilots salute and I think you know what that is, of course, um, two people who were disenchanted uh, with her as she entered the city hall one day, and they were standing out kind of razzing her, and she didn't waste any time in flipping them off. Um, she's also exposed the general weakness of, of, uh, of Poe, the mayor. He, he's lost control of the meeting. He can't control it. Uh, she's had sassed him as a chair. As a chair, you can't let that happen. And there is a remedy for this, and I've actually been involved in this remedy. When I was the city manager of the city of Archer, we had the same sort of problem. We had one really uh, uh, obnoxious, difficult, argumentative, disruptive commissioner who completely spoiled it for the others, and that's only five commissioners. Uh, so I, as the city manager, recommended to them that they apply their own rules to discipline this unruly commissioner. In their case, they were using the Roberts Rules of Orders, and I don't know what the city of Gainesville is using, but all these rules allow you to discipline an unruly or cantankerous uh, uh, member. And uh, what, what we did there is we actually, I recommend, I didn't do it, I recommended to the commissioners that if you were uh, tired of being uh, annoyed and disrupted and 
abused and all this by this one commissioner, uh, you can apply your own rules and censor her. And they did. And this censoring procedure can even result in this commissioner who's unruly uh, being removed from the dais. So it has several levels of, 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 uh, of uh, um, uh, pollution, uh, uh, solution pro uh, uh, problem solving that can go on. And it's administered by the commissioners themselves. This probably won't happen here for a couple of reasons. One, you don't have a strong city manager who would advise these city commissioners how they can get out of this problem. And you have city commissioners who are leaving. And so it's not going to be resolved, in my humble opinion. The rudeness is going to continue. The insulting behavior of the unruly Cinco um, is, um, and, but I believe, imagine this, that you can stand out as, uh, as a rude one uh, among all these others. The other six, you stand out even worse as being, you know, more unruly than them, than they. Uh, so, so, you know, imagine that. So that's where Cinco is. Uh, she's insulted the members of the audience. Now, one of the curious things about this is that uh, they didn't dare do this to the, to the malcontent minorities who came to complain about the canine dogs. Uh, they let those people pretty much run amok and be rude and didn't censor them the way that they have done some of the other members of the audience over other issues. And there's all sorts of opinions about why that is and how come they get away with it. And you can draw your own conclusions on that. But it is what it is. So now we have a situation where we really have a, a city that is completely falling apart. Uh, we have a police department that is completely dissipated. Um, you know, here these guys um, sign on to a, 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 uh, a deal with Boss Hart where Boss Hart pays for uh, the investigation that they end up using as a police department against another member of the party of the dispute that Boss Hart pays the investigation of. Um, that, that, and we have that recording on, uh, on the Wartop Bulletin Board. It's also alluded to in one of the depositions given in one of the legal cases involving this dispute. Uh, so the Gainesville Police Department is in uh, shambles. Um, the problem is that it's, uh, uh, it doesn't have leadership, that it can be free of intimidation from the commissioners who run the police department, unlike the sheriff's office, which is run by the sheriff. And the sheriff is elected by the community. Um, the, the police chiefs are appointed by the commissioners. So um, totally different deal. And you can see the chaos that's ensued, and it is dragging the city down. So you've got a, a Gainesville Police Department that is uh, completely a mess. Uh, you have got a problem with the finances of the city of Gainesville that is so bad uh, that I'm told uh, by responsible people who know about this, that not only can the auditor not straighten out the finances of the city, the auditor can't even find the receipts from which to work. So there are a lot of problems with that as well. Um, where do you begin if you don't have any uh, copies of what was spent and by whom it was spent and on what it was spent and how much was, was spent? How do you begin to unravel that ball of yarn? Uh, then you've got the proverbial cash cow over there on the sidelines, which is the Gainesville Regional Utilities, which subsidizes this chaos and this uh, insolvency. And no one seems to be able to 
unhitched from that and straighten it out. So there are a lot of issues that are going on uh, with the city of Gainesville that are only going to get worse. Uh, I don't, Harvey Ward is not going to be able to straighten it out. He's part of the problem. Uh, he was a commissioner doing all this. Uh, I subject, I, I suspect there'll be more finger pointing, more name calling. Uh, I would recommend they censor Cinco and even maybe remove her from the dais if she's going to continue to insult the public and the other members of the commission. Um, it's not my business. I'm not the city manager, but I would sure make that recommendation right away. And then it would be up to the commission to carry through with it. So um, the, the, the world of Gainesville is um, really a mess. And then you have, of course, the interesting uh, battle that we're going to sit back and watch that's going to take place between Cinco and Chestnut. Now, Cinco took on more. This is the common, this is what most people feel. Cinco took on more than she's going to be able to handle when she took on Chestnut. Um, Chestnut's a, a, a wizened, if you will, wise, uh, like, kind of like a manatee. Got a lot of scars on her back from propellers running over her, but she's still swimming in the river. Um, Chestnut has been around through a lot of battles. Uh, my golly, she's drawn a check from the state for no, any number of roles that she's been involved with. She's always been very nice to me. Uh, she's part of the Chestnut uh, dynasty, if you will. And she doesn't tread lightly on people who take her on like Cinco has. So I think it's going to be interesting to keep an eye on that. Um, that's a big base that Chestnut's got, not a very big base that Cinco's got. Cinco went to the University of Florida Law School. I think I'm saying her name right and is from Cuba. So um, uh, the um, plantation mark says no receipts wouldn't fly with the IRS. Well, uh, Mark, I, I, you know, we're beyond even where the receipts are in the city of Gainesville. It's, um, uh, you know, who's in charge because that's musical chairs all the time as well. Uh, they're always changing out um, what is going on, it seems, uh, and who's doing it. Uh, we can't figure out uh, what Tony Jones is paid for. Uh, he has a handsome six-figure uh, uh, salary, and near as we can tell, doesn't do much. The canine deal is I'm going to have a show on that when we get back from Thanksgiving, a detailed, thorough discussion with responsible guests about canines so you, the audience, listeners, know what the truth is. Because one of the things that should happen, if you're the mayor and you're running the, running the commission, and these people come up and start shouting down the canines, uh, you should say, well, we're not going to make decisions on emotion. Please give us the data on uh, that supports your position. And invariably, when you ask for this from these type of people who are running on hysterics and emotion, they can't produce the data. And that shuts them down right away. If you insist on data and not their screaming, uh, come back when you have the data, they can never come back. Because they don't have it. They only have their feelings. And I have faced this as a chair before uh, where people come in and I want, they think the loudest voice will get the biggest result. And all you do is say, well, you know, I don't, I'm not listening to your voice. I'm listening to the data from which you, uh, uh, your voice came. And uh, it's always been my experience that uh, um, they can't produce that. So uh, that's one. But Poe doesn't seem to be in charge anymore. He's the other thing is this mysterious trip to the Middle East uh, 
which is um, would be different, I suppose. Uh, this this sister city stuff is a racket. Uh, they've been going on this sister city stuff forever. Uh, way back when, when it was five commissioners, they went to Russia and um, had a sister city in Russia. And I know that one of the commissioners was a realtor. And when he went to Russia, he met some Russian capitalist. And when he came back from the trip that the city paid for, uh, that he supposedly went to trade political wisdom with, he came back with Russian buyers for his realtor business. And so he profited quite handsomely, personally, from the contacts he made, which were paid for by the public. And I used to suggest to him that I thought this was unethical. I don't think I ever got anywhere with that. Of course, I was just a citizen then. And I, I said, hey, you know, does this not bother you? I mean, you went over there on, uh, um, you know, the, the, the public dollar. Did the public get a cut of your commissions from the sales you made with the Russians you met? Of course not. Now, in the case of Poe and how low can you go Poe and the poodle, uh, Areola, and the kid who can't remember where he slept last night, Adrian Heza Santosa, uh, why um, they don't have a business that I can think of. So supposedly they would be going over their their own uh, to pick up what? Tips for how to run the city of Gainesville? You've got to be kidding me. You cannot be serious that they're going to go to the Middle East to talk to a city there to learn how to run the city of Gainesville better? You cannot be serious. And never going to pull this off until I think some, un, uh, some civic soul uh, started asking some questions about it. You know, why should we be paying for your personal private trip under the umbrella coverage of trading political models with the Middle East when you're not even going to be governing the political model? Uh, I think Adrian Hayes Santos has gotten a little bit of cold feet on this uh, and maybe is going to withdraw his uh, trip. But I doubt Poe does. I mean, this is a, hey, come on, man. In his mind, he probably feels like he deserves it for uh, keeping the company store uh, in business, but is not in very solvent business. So how does he think he deserves it? He's not going to get the tips from over there that he's going to bring back to straighten up the mess the city of Gainesville is in. So that's my observation on where uh, that particular municipal government is. Uh, look for it to even get worse. And look for us uh, uh, tomorrow, of course, we'll have Ted Yoho. But when we get back from our vacation on Thanksgiving and Friday, we'll plan on having a detailed kind of uh, conversation about canine dogs and what really is the story, what's the truth on it, and try to straighten out that, at least for you, the listeners and the viewers of the Ward Scott Files. Really thought we had a great guest today. Uh, please uh, spread uh, the link. Uh, please go to rumble.com and like us. And uh, that gives us more followers. And uh, we'll uh, have a great uh, show for you today, I'm sure. I want to thank production for helping out as usual. And have a, a, a safe day. Warthog Command Center out.